Welcome to the Paramedia Podcast with Luca Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Meru Media Podcast. Uh, I'm your host today, Mukunda Raghavan, and I am joined by a special guest. Um, I, I, I say all the time special guest, but all my guests are very special because they come with unique backgrounds, understanding, and information for us to think about, digest, and incorporate. Um, today's guest is actually Professor Lavanya uh, Vamsani. Um, she is a professor of both religious studies and history at uh, Shawnee State University, which is in Ohio. Um, she is an expert in both Hindu, Hindu studies and Jain studies, which is a really interesting dynamic. And we've had one or two professors on previously that have some expertise in Jain work, but she's actually done quite a bit of deep exploration between the symmetries of Jain iconography and mythology, or not, I wouldn't say mythology, but um, uh, stories and epics along with the, the Hindu side. So, uh, Professor Vamsani, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Namaste. So, um, Professor, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background and like kind of your educational background and then your professional background to get a sense of how you came to where you are now? Okay. Um, very humble beginnings. Uh, okay. I come from a small, small village, uh, but uh, family that uh, placed value on education. Mm -hmm. um, and my family especially did not push me into any one subject. Um, so they allowed me to pick the subject that I liked. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually began with uh, going into, you know, biology and all that, and then switched into history. Yeah, and, um, arts curriculum, and then uh, of course most of my education is in Hyderabad. Uh, I did uh, masters uh, at Usmania University, and then uh, MPhil and PhD at uh, University of Hyderabad in history. Uh, and then I went for further studies in um, Canada, um, uh, McMaster University mm -hmm. uh, in religious studies. Um, history, of course, was very nice, but um, historical artifacts in the um, ancient period, you know, you need, they're like silent, you know, you need this other aspect of it. And religious studies um, complements it, uh, mm -hmm. early history. And um, so, so at McMaster, I did um, history of religion. Um, so. Wow. So, um uh, where in India are you from originally? I, I, I'm guessing somewhere in Andhra Pradesh or what is now Telangana. Telangana, yeah. yeah. Now it became Telangana. Uh, yeah. So uh, originally from Kamam district, mm -hmm. um, uh, a small village. You know, it's now in um, I think uh, Kamam district. Still. Okay. So if I can ask, you know, coming from a, a smaller village, was was going out to get your PhD in college? Was that like a different experience than? what you would assume a lot of people coming from urban environments would have? Was it tougher? Was it, was it a little more of a challenge? Mm -hmm. it, it is, but uh, uh, my family supported me, as I told you. Uh, mm -hmm. The family placed value uh, on education. So right. yeah, it is difficult, but um, I qualified for uh, all the entrance exams and you know scholarships and um, everything. So uh, it is okay. difficult. 
you know, yeah, to because go I, and do things. So <laughs> I always wonder that because, you know, it's a lot of people that end up getting their PhDs and getting, you know, becoming as highly distinguished and qualified as you are tend to come from much more urban environments where access to education and access to, you know, a different kind of modern lifestyle is much more at hand. And, in, in, and a lot of people, even in the U.S., don't understand the distinction between village life versus urban life because America is so urbanized, right? So the Indian context is so different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, I mean, um, what, what drove you to, to kind of want to get into history? I mean, why did you pick that of all subjects at first? Um, the district I grew up uh, is very rich in um, ancient culture. Uh, oh. So, uh, you know, the Kamam district uh, has a number of places that, that show continuity. Uh, Kamam district is one uh, district that has um, the river Godavari. Um, and um, so, I, so there are monuments, uh, even when we are walking, you know, there are monuments. Um, and some of the monuments are identified actually as um, Paleolithic hand axes, but... Oh, wow. uh, they're actually installed in the temples, you know, Hanmanji's temple, uh, Ram temple. You know, so so what do you mean uh, there, these Paleolithic sites are, the temple was built around them or was, is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Like these, the, these uh, sites go back so far and they've built a temple around them. Yeah. So uh, have you seen, um, you're from urban uh, sent, uh, urban well, sent, so I mean, yeah, I, well, my, well, my mom was born in, uh, somewhere close to Thirunanveli. Um, and I, so I, I was born in Madras, but I, I lived all my life in the U S and in, in pretty much an urban or suburban environment. So okay. I don't really like my only exposure to village life has been whenever I go back to the family village and spend a week or so there or a few days there, you know, it's not very, I'm not very much exposed. Um, so, um, the, in, in South India, the temples are, um, you know, the village goddess temple, Hanmanji's temple, there are small temples, but uh, they're on the street side and, you know, they're of course very well um, preserved and loved uh, mm -hmm. structures, but uh, they're there. Of course, when I was growing up, I didn't know there, there are, you know, Paleolithic monuments, megalithic monuments and all that. Yeah. Uh, megalithic monuments, you know, the local uh, stories, megalithic monuments, they call them as, you know, the Ram lived here and this is where Sita dried her saris and the stories. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so these, these huge <laughs> um, megalithic monuments, Paleolithic monuments, you know, the hand axes are, you know, they look like this. Hand axes, you probably have seen them. So they're actually um, put like a deity and uh -huh. deity uh, in temple. So the, I figured that out only when I came to Hyderabad. Mm. Um, but uh, because, you know, there are others, uh, faculty, other people who were identifying them. Uh, but um, they fascinated me. Uh, yeah. And it was, you know, what is this? What is going on here? What is our history? Uh, what are these structures? Really, did Ram really visit here? Did Sita dry them here? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's fascinating stories, you know. So you um, so got into history, uh, ancient mm -hmm. history, uh, and then went on to find out all these things. You know, uh, in fact, Central University actually has a megalithic monuments at its entrance. 
Oh, wow. Enter to the Central University. There is a huge, like, 150-foot tall uh, standing megalithic monument. Wow. Yeah. So, so they're fascinating. You know, you're like, oh, how did they stand this huge, you know, <laughs> it's like huge rock. How right. did we stand it? And it's it did not fall in you know three thousand years or two thousand years. So so megalithic again. I mean, as for some, some people that might not know, refers to a period I think somewhere between three to five thousand years ago. Is that right, or is it a little bit uh, later than that? They're, they're dated between. Um, they're prior to history. Uh, uh -huh. Their beginning is you know sometimes. Um, historians differ on it. Some, sometimes historians place it together with um, megalithic um, and um, neolithic. Uh -huh. so, uh, in South India, it's difficult to actually separate them because mm -hmm. as the stages continued, uh, you have the neolithic, neolithic actually involved very fast. Mm -hmm. But right beside neolithic, uh, the earlier lifestyle, you know, the mesolithic lifestyle continued and also the megalithic also evolved. So mm. you have parallel lifestyles in some of the sites um, that, that uh, archaeologists have excavated. Uh, and of course, you also have Buddhist monuments. In some places, Buddhist monuments are actually built right on top of the uh, megalithic monuments. Interesting. So, so yeah. it's, a con it's, a, it's a basically a continuous, continuous civilization for at least a few thousand years before Christ, if mm -hmm. we want, or before the Common Era. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's, I mean, that's... Uh, not many places in the world can actually have that that kind of uh, testament, right? It, it's it's unique, right. and I and I feel like South India is covered in it. Like everywhere you go, it's every like town or village has some sort of megalithic or neolithic structure that's connected to that village. Right. Um. So okay. So you so you studied. You got into uh, history. Well, that's, that's what I studied. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I went for my ample. Uh, and I studied these, you know, early inscriptions and how civilization, you know, from 6th century to 12th century. And then I wanted to really study these early monuments. So mm -hmm. I studied the uh, early settlement patterns for my PhD. So these are the, these monuments and these, you know, continuity and these are the things I studied for my PhD uh, uh -huh. at uh, Central University, Hyderabad Central University. Then... Um, so did you have field work? Huh? Did you do field work? Did you go out to the field and stuff like that? Or, <laughs> yeah, or was it mostly scholarly? Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, I went out to look at these monuments and, you know, uh, visited the museums where the, some things are brought and put, yeah. put information and all that. Yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, that must have been, a, I mean, coming in, going back to look at these monuments um, with, with the, the eyes of a scholar or historian must be very different from viewing it as like a child or or someone without that knowledge of the history. Right. And it's fascinating, you know, the, the megalithic monuments and some of these early monuments are, you know, uh, studied in those days. Uh, and some of them identified them with the Ramayana path. Uh, so, uh, and the stories I heard also, you know, <laughs> so yeah. Kind of, yeah, so it's fascinating, but um, you you would examine more and you would see um, Neolithic, Megalithic, and all these sites. Uh, but they're still silent for you. Uh, you don't, you know, <laughs> uh, so everyone is giving, you know, their own different theory. But the fascinating thing is they, there is a continuous civilization. They, yeah. they, the sites continue. Um, you know, uh, the sites 
are you know not abruptly stopped not you know occupied by a different uh, culture and all that you know the right. neolithic megalithic uh, all these are continuing uh-huh. and you also see different uh, pottery different artifacts coming from different cultures you know um, the um, um harappan pottery uh, in you know indus valley pottery uh, sometimes indus valley you know kind of style stylized uh, drawings and you know they are they are also found on uh, pottery in megalithic uh, monuments so uh, it's fascinating uh, but um, <laughs> yeah i mean so i i like, so i, I, I go for you know the religious studies you know so how, how can we understand our culture you know what right. happened before no i mean <laughs> so we have all these things continuing things but what about you know uh, the story you know how how does this go i remember i remember so when we were younger our my dad would take us on a basically a temple tour through south india would go to andhra pradesh and go to Tamil Nadu, Karnataka, everywhere. So I remember going to these temples that were, you know, ancient, you know, I, I, we don't know how old, but they're at least like 1500 years old, if not earlier, right? So, and then there'd be, I, I remember this Narasimha temple we went to where, where you go through a tunnel and, right. and they say that in the tunnel, Prahalada did his uh, meditations for a while. So right. I, I remember these, these structures were so connected to a deep right. history um, that it's, it's, it's almost like like it's part of the earth and the soil and the environment in that in within these areas right right so uh, so somehow um our um i think they understood uh, yeah. the importance of these monuments or these you know stone tools that they found mm-hmm. probably to pay, place them in a sacred uh, place yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. So, so whatever stories they might have constructed but they understood the importance they some somehow the idea of this importance and continuity is passed on to them. Yeah, um so you you did your PhD in Central University and then did you teach in India or did you decide immediately to go to Canada to do your masters? I mean um, your 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 second PhD, sorry. <laughs> I did a little bit of teaching not much. Uh-huh. Uh, but um, i i applied for my uh, second phd while i was still finishing up my first phd okay um, so i actually went back to do, do the defense you know the my uh, phd defense so uh-huh. um, so while i was finishing it i came uh, to that that must have been crazy amount of work you know juggling <laughs> basically two phd's at once <laughs> right <laughs> So when you did your PhD in McMaster's what was your focus there Um it was um, it was the Hindu and uh, Jain uh, mm-hmm. stories you know so I picked um, Balarama yeah uh, study so I studied four um, Hindu texts and four uh, Jain texts mm-hmm. because both of them are uh, ancient enough and both of them have parallel stories okay so i i wanted to see how they preserved the stories yeah uh, both both of them uh, so for hindu i did um, harivamsha uh, vishnu purana brahma purana bhagavata purana uh-huh. for um, jain i did antakatha dasavo and vasudeva hindi and harivamsha again harivamsha but their their harivamsha is different yeah 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 they their their version is a little bit different yeah so what 
I mean, from your, you, you wrote a book on this too, and I've read quite a few of your articles covering Krishna and Balarama in both Jain and Hindu contexts. So, so most people understand Krishna and Balarama in the Hindu context. What is, what is, what is the role of Krishna and Balarama and their story in the Jain context? In the Jain context also, they're, they're very important. Mm -hmm. uh, both of them, they're come cousins of Neminatha. Uh, Neminatha is a very important... Um, Peter, yeah. yeah, so um, uh, they're important they, as his cousins. Um, but somehow they place more importance on uh, Balarama. Uh, and um, Krishna, of course, important. Uh, mm -hmm. But the story is um, changed a little bit. Uh, and one important aspect that um, Jain stories have is, you know, they actually add uh, past life stories for uh, mm. Krishna and Balarama. Uh, so Vasudeva Hindi um, has the past life stories and um, so, yeah. so Chaupanapur Mahapurushacharyam also has uh, past life stories. So the past life stories actually make uh, Balarama's life story is much more positive, uh, much more uh, of a deity standing for uh, Dharma. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's always interesting to me because in, in both the Mahabharata, Hari Vamsha, Vishnu Balarama has a role, but it's almost always secondary. And then in his stories, it's also, he's, he's portrayed as like a um, kind of a Bhima-esque character. He's, 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 he's strong, powerful, but he's also, he's a drunkard. He likes to drink and he likes to, he likes to engage in fights. And, you know, like in, even in, in he, he's the one, like a lot of people don't know, he's the one that ends up killing Rukmini's brother after he gets cheated in a, in a dice context uh, way, way later. So the story of Balarama is interesting in, in, the, in the Hindu sense, but I think in the, in the Jain sense, isn't he, I mean, there's this, there's a concept, I think, in the Jain, if you want to explain it, the Vasudeva, Prati Vasudeva, and then there's the, is, this other one, is that the other one, Samkarshana? Is that, is that what the, the third role is? Yeah, he's yeah. called more as uh, Samkarshana. So they are Vasudeva and uh, Baladeva. Uh, yeah. They're in this cycle of uh, births, you know. So, so with Tirdankara, there are always Vasudevas and Baladevas and uh, also the uh, Prati Vasudevas, you know. So, so can you explain those uh, concepts? Because a lot of people don't, a lot of Hindus don't know any of this stuff. So I, I, a lot of people generally don't. I don't even think a lot of Jains know. So it's, it's always interesting because I'll talk to Jains about it. They say they, they worship sometimes Krishna, but they don't know this, this theory of Vasudeva, Prati Vasudeva, and Baladeva. Could you, would you mind? Oh, Baladeva and Vasudeva, it's... Um... In the cosmology, Jain cosmology, they maintain an important role uh, mm -hmm. in keeping the, you know, uh, Jain uh, universe, uh, universal role. Uh, that's the reason they are born every time uh, Tirtankara is born. Um, and so uh, Neminata and um, Baladeva was uh, Baladeva was So the same names are given to the prior incarnations also. So you would see incarnations, you know, Rama and Lakshmana also categorized yeah. as uh, Baladeva and Vasudeva. Uh, so, uh, of course, Tirtankara, um, it's about monasticism and, you know, Brahmacharya and all that, but uh, Vasudeva and Baladeva uh, in a different aspect. So, uh, they, they uh, do the dharma of uh, keeping up, um, Kshatra dharma, uh, but um, 
within the within the cosmos of you know um, vanquishing the Pratyavasudeva. And mm-hmm. Pratyavasudeva uh, need to be vanquished so that you know the universal peace is maintained. Yeah. Uh, and Jainism, of course, you know, is all about maintaining this universal peace. So as maintainers, as uh, someone who is involved with maintaining this universal peace, um, Paladeva and Vasudeva, both of them have a very important role. Yeah. It, it, within the Jain cosmology, I also know that, um, you know, is it, is it Vasudevas tend to go to Naraka and spend time there? Like, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a very interesting concept because I think in some ways, even the Hindus have this concept of like, even the gods or work of the gods has negative consequences to it. You still have to pay your karma, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, from my understanding, it's, so from my understanding, the Vasudeva tends to be the one that does the killing, actually the action, the negative action. The Baladeva right. tends to be the one to uphold the Jain ideals of, Nonviolence and things of that nature. Right, right. So in Jainism, there is no forgiveness for violence, even Mm -hmm. if somebody does it to maintain the dharma. So, so Krishna, not Krishna, you know, Vasudeva. Yeah. um, Incarnations of Vasudevas um, um, go to these, you know, different hells. Yeah. Uh, But um, only for a temporary, you know, and then they're reborn again. Yeah. Uh, but this goes with the Jain uh, ideals of uh, peace and nonviolence. Yeah, it, it's it, to me, it's it's such a fascinating, fascinating idea because I, I would just imagine like Hindus hearing about oh my God, Baladeva or Vasudeva have to go through Naraka or whatever it is, and then they're feeling angry. But did we ever historically see any violence built around uh, these contentious issues? Um, I haven't seen though. Um, no? no, I haven't. The the Harivamsa, of course, is composed around fifth uh, century in uh, South India. Uh, that's this when the Jain right? and yeah, Chalukyas. Uh, yeah, very good relations between these um, Jain dynasties and um, Hindu dynasties. Yeah. Yeah. Not much of a violence. Um, later on, of course, you would see, but not not at that stage when these books are being written. Right. Historically, what was the... the, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Historically, um, nations or states that are um, pressed for resources Mm -hmm. um, have more violence. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is one aspect you don't see in um, ancient Indian societies. You know, people are actually surprised. Um, Not many weapons are found in uh, Indus Valley. Yeah, uh, cities and not many weapons are found in um, all these Neolithic, Paleolithic, and you know, the, of course, the stone axes and all those are found. But those are like um, utilitarian, mm. not not mainly weapons. Right. Um, the, the 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 things are found, but you know, they are uh, mostly utilitarian, not uh, not aimed at you know warfare or you know violence. Uh-huh. Uh, that's one reason uh, people guess uh, that um, maybe Indian um, subcontinent was resource rich, mm-hmm. uh, that um, they don't really have to go and you know vanquish the other group. Uh, and um, uh, that was true for most of the um, ancient period. Uh, you don't see uh, too much of weapons um, in prehistoric sites, um, even in megalithic sites. Uh, very, very rarely uh, you would see. 
uh, and uh, ancient history, of course, you would start seeing wars, uh, mm-hmm. but um, still um, not not as much as you would imagine uh, in other societies. You know, uh, yeah, uh, war is a common occurrence uh, in in other uh, societies, contemporary societies. So, so historically, I mean, so Jainism and Hinduism have been, I mean basically around together for maybe 3,000 years, right? If you, if you think about, if, if Mahavira is probably like five, uh, fifth century, you know, BCE, at least four or 500 years before him has to have been the origins of Jainism, right? So they've been around together for a very long time. For a very um, long time, yeah. What has been their historic relationship and, 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 and why is it that you also think that maybe Jains weren't able to become as big or... I mean, there were for a period of time, but then they, they shrunk down again. So would, would, you, would you talk a little bit about the relationship between the Hindus and Jains over time? Um, the relationship, uh, of course, you know, not much violence. Uh, mm-hmm. And you would see, you know, the, the, the Vemulwada Chalukyas that, that I studied. Yeah. Uh, you would see Hindu temples as well as um, Jain temples, Jain monuments that uh, they supported. So... So I think during the historical period, I don't see much of an animosity between uh, these two groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, politically, um, Jainism may be strong. Yeah. Um, uh, um, their decline only comes after... Um, uh, I, I haven't studied, you know, Jain history much. So... Yeah. Uh, but uh, only later, um, only after 12th century or something like that, you still have you know larger uh, states that supported Jainism uh, in the in the West. Uh, yeah. West Coast especially has lots of Jainism. Um, East Coast, of course, Orissa, Andhra, you know, have some monuments, but um, it declined uh, gradually. And you would hear the story of you know how. Uh, one of the Chalukya emperors um, adapted Shaivism uh, and other things. But, so. Yeah, because I, I remember the story within, you know, uh, I belong to the Sri Vaishnava tradition, uh, the story of the Hosala kingdom that would have uh, Ramanuja convert uh, the Jain king there from Jain to Sri yeah. Vaishnavism by curing his daughter or something yeah. of that nature. Right? Yeah, so, the Kastrakutas, Hoyasalas, you know, yeah. The, so, it continued very, very strong um, foundations but yeah because i always find like jainism is really interesting because for me it's uh you know even in ancient tamil you know uh literature like silipati haram and and it's and it's a sequel it's supposed to have written by a, a jain monk and there's quite a bit of both hindu and jain thought that's like like flowing through the the text right yeah. so um so on your work on on balarama um, how different was Balarama between the Hindu side and the Jain side? On the Hindu side, uh, you would see the um, violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, he participates in these wars, he gets angry, and you know, and he's also associated with drink. Mm-hmm. Um, you won't see that in uh, Jain stories. Um, he was, um, of course, he's a, you know, associated with Dharma, but more of, yeah. you know, so he's balancing Krishna. Uh, Krishna see. takes these actions and he's, you know, trying to balance it quietly. So, 
yeah so you won't see uh, lots of violence on uh, balarama side okay yeah i mean it, it's it's also interesting because i think in the mahabharata itself balarama doesn't participate in the big war he kind of yeah. goes on his uh he his, goes on his, his <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um, I, yeah. that's what i actually thought um, based on my research you know he's more of um, a deity associated with resources and uh, um, fertility and resources and mm -hmm. um, providing for the people you would see you know kind of a aspect of uh, that uh, within Balarama, and I also think the drink, uh, mm -hmm. probably maybe not drink, but you know, uh, that's his way of providing for the people uh, that symbolized um, later on in the stories. That's what I think, because he, he uh, actually represents, you know, the, the, the food resources and happiness. Uh, yeah, because the, 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 the... Rama is, you know, this bringer of joy, right? So, yeah. so that's what is uh, represented, I think, symbolically. Which makes total sense, right? Because he, he walks with a, uh, he, he's a haladara, right? He carries, right. The, he carries the plow, which is a symbol of, of food right. and farming. And then right. he's also very famous for taming Yamuna, right? He, right. he redirects the path towards right. a different location. So, right. so, so I mean, yeah. So it's a food and drink and bringer of joy, right? So that's, that's the representation of Balarama. Uh, it's more about that. And um, in the Hariwamsha, um, Krishna actually praises him in one of the episodes. Mm -hmm. um, and the praise that Krishna gives him uh, actually involves a lot of uh, terms that actually connect, connect him to Vishnu and uh, the earth, abundance of the earth. And mm. so. Is, is this the Jain Harivamsha or the, the, the Mahabharata the, Harivamsha? The, the Mahabharata Harivamsha, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because, no, you know, it's a, uh, because later on, Balarama gets very much. Although he is an avatar of Vishnu in, in some sense, he also gets very Im immersed with Shesha, right? And, and Adi Shesha. And, right. and do, do you have a sense of why that transition occurred or is there? Yeah. 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 The Shesha and Nagas are also associated with the fertility and agriculture, right? You know, yeah. the, the Nagas are worshipped at the beginning, you know, Nag Panchami is at the beginning of uh, Plowing in our agricultural season. Mm -hmm. um, so somehow Balarama is associated with uh, agriculture and plowing. Uh, and the uh, Naga deity is also associated with, um, you know, plowing and uh, agriculture. Yeah. So as an agricultural deity and as someone who is associated with, you know, guarding the resources and then providing food and drink. Um, mm -hmm. So... Um, Balarama is kind of like a multifaceted uh, deity. Um, that's what my thesis was, you know, the, um, the book uh, yeah. actually discusses that, you know, how Balarama is a multifaceted uh, deity uh, yeah. rather than what we understand him to be. Uh, and he's also associated, associated with this time. Uh, time warp, right? You know, um, his wife, um, yeah. Evati, yeah, <laughs> actually is from another uh, yuga, you know. <laughs> so, um, and the um, Hindu uh, idea of time, you know, uh, the millions of years, Kalpa and yuga and all this. So, so she was born and she was ready to be uh, married and her father visits Brahma, you know, Brahma's... Yeah. 
time is different right you know he blinks the eye and an an error changes right his day yeah. is one error so you know it was a day by the time they come back so she an error has changed you know it's barbara yuga now so so um the time warp you know so she comes back but she's from an another era so she's Bharat, a giant too that's how they yeah, describe her giant you know because the, as the yugas go uh, yeah. people are supposed to become smaller shorter so so you know so he so the story you know um, connects him to you know that time warp um, and then also connects him to fertility uh, and connects him to you know uh, drink and uh, agriculture so which which if you I connect think there are many yeah yeah if you connect to the adi shesha right or ananta shesha the term yeah. itself ananta right with a beyond yeah. time right the time yeah it's this connection of uh, that makes total sense in the jain version does balarama also uh, have the similar relationship with time or is it only in the no the jain version doesn't have it yeah oh interesting yeah yeah um so I, I, aside from the work you've done on Hinduism and Jainism, you also spent a lot of time doing work on Narasimha in the in the Andhra Andhra world, which I thought was fascinating. It's I, fascinating. I really, because it's because it, it is it's really interesting because I feel like Narasimha plays a really big role, in primarily two locations that I've noticed in India, which is usually the mountain region, the 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 Garhwal in that region, and he plays a very big role in Andhra. Like you know, you won't hear many like Tamilians or other parts of the country be. their children called narasimha but you right. get that all the time there's movies called narasimha in in telugu so yeah. it, what is the relationship between narasimha and telugu and the telugu people in in, in telugu regions both states andhra yeah. pradesh and telangana um narasimha is worshiped in a in a large scale uh, so um after vishnu you know after venkateshwara temple yeah. uh, third largest temple is narasimha temple so second is the goddess temple durga temple um, mm. so um and there are many temples in every uh, every small town there is a there is a temple narasimha temple most yeah, yeah. um and narasimha of course is associated um i think the the sacred geography uh, of um, india is connected to the sacred geography of uh, hinduism and the sacred cosmology um and i think somehow the sacred cosmology connects him to the to the to the middle region um so you know narasimha is you know the in the middle right you know we we understand his association with the middle um and uh he's he's in between these two eras you know the era is you know changed by hiranyakashipu and then he has to change it back you know yeah. it's turned back so he has to turn it back so he has to stay outside so he's in the middle and then he turns it so the sacred geography of uh, andhra pradesh of course it's in the central uh, part of uh, india uh, mm. and telangana especially is in the central part Uh, and the temples that are associated with uh, narasimha are located in the mountainous regions mm-hmm. uh, ahobalam um, you know okay, that's yeah. also a popular name given to many people you know yeah 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 ahobala ahobala you know that yeah, is yeah. from the temple the sacred site so uh, so the story you know yerana uh, wrote the poetical composition on the story and then that's where he took uh, his incarnation uh, and then he goes to do his meditation after um, killing hiranyakashipu mm-hmm. 
uh, that's in Yadagiri Gupta. That's also a big temple center in Telangana. So, uh, and of course, Prahlada built another one in uh, Simhachalam. So, so it goes across the places, but most of the places are associated with uh, the sacred geography mm. of being in the middle. You know, this is in the middle of nowhere. So he's in the middle, um, you know, not water, not <laughs> place, yeah. not, you know, so, so that, that kind of symbolism you would see in uh, almost all his temples and then the, the, the location of these temples also. Uh, and he's of course associated with Vishnu. So many of the Vishnu temples also have. Yeah. No, your article is really fascinating. I loved how, how you connected the middle to also the story of, of Marisam himself. He's, he's not one or the other. He's not this or that. Everything yeah. he does is in, is in between things. It's, right. it's like this transitional, like, like you said, between the age two. But another fascinating thing is, you, I believe you talked about it, is even though he is a deva, he exhibits these asudic or rakshasic qualities right. uh, in, in, in the flipping of, right. the, of the age. So right. it's, it's really fascinating how like, like this, I mean, a Vishnu is considered a sattvic view, right? Very, very peace. But Narasimha is this very fiery rodra, very, you know, it's such a juxtaposition. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? You know? that's, that's, that's the reason. Um, because he changed, yeah. uh, and he uh, assumed this form of being in the middle, right? The transitional form. Uh, and he's, you know, the, the lion and the human and, you know, kind of like half and half. Yeah. Uh, and the way he's born also, he's, he's you know, uh, from the pillar, you know, the pillar breaks and he mm -hmm. comes and uh, all that middle of the pillar right you know it's nothing but it's <laughs> so um so the story um represents you know the middle uh, and the middle of course is also uh, taken over into the theater uh, aspect of it you know the theater festival uh, is actually associated with Narasimha. You know, the Narasimha festival uh, actually celebrated for um, seven days uh, mm. so the seven days of course are the theater festival I see. In most of the temple sites, you know, and uh, poets like um, um, Srinada speak about, you know, going to the temple city for this temple festival mm. uh, that has the, you know, the literary aspect to it, the theater aspect to it. So um, theater, of, of course, you know, uh, theater is where uh, the actors assume this different form. Mm -hmm. uh, they become different person, right? So they're they are a different character for the, for the time being that they are on the stage. So, you know, the, the symbolic um, incarnation of Narasimha uh, is also reflected uh, in, the, in the, of course, the temples, as well as, you know, the festivals and the um, associated rituals mm -hmm. of um, Narasimha. So his, so his relationship to Andhra Pradesh and Telangana is... is very deep rooted, right? How far does that go back? Uh, the inscriptions we get from uh, 10th century, you know, later uh, 10th century and all that. But, um, but the temples, people say they, they existed longer yeah. than the temples were built. Mm -hmm. The temple already existed. It was already a sacred site, um, mm -hmm. which was recognized. And then a temple was constructed um, mm -hmm. when, you know, uh, when, um, the Chalikyas and, you know, the Vijayanagara and all these kings were able to find these places and build the temples. But 
um, the idea was that you know they they existed before. Yeah, and, and I also find it very fascinating how many ways um, Narasimha is also connected to Rudra, right? He's connected to Shiva yeah. in yeah. terms of being like, especially if you look at through the Pancharatra system, you know, uh, Shiva is connected to Aniruddha, and Narasimha is also supposed to be connected to Aniruddha too. Yeah. Yeah, um, the, the earliest sculpture actually connects him to you know the Vaishnava deities, the the, the Panchaviras. The, yeah. From Andhra Pradesh, you have this sculpture, you know, and uh, Narasimha is in the middle, and then there are these Panchaviras. Um, Who are the Panchaviras? Earliest. That's the earliest sculptures. That's that comes from third century. And who are the Panchaviras in this? The Aniruddha Samba, you know. Oh, yeah. the, the sons of uh, Krishna, Anuruddha, Padimna, Samba. And, yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, it, 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 uh, I mean, Narasimha also has a very interesting connection to Hanuman, right? And, and very much so in the, in the Panchamukha form. And there's right. this there's underlying connection. Do you know anything about that connection and, and why, how that exists? I'm, I'm still working on this Panchamukha connection. Yeah, uh, I can I can say about the Shiva connection though. The, the Shiva connection is of course represented in the temples. You know, the Simhachalam temple uh, keeps him, you know, wraps. Um, so, uh, and um, Shiva connection you would find in the um, story also uh, when uh, Narasimha was uh, supposed to withdraw his. Uh, incarnate, he, he wouldn't, yeah, it's Vugra Rupam, right? Yeah. Nobody, can, <laughs> nobody can make him withdraw. So uh, they, uh, they request Shiva uh, to actually uh, get him to come back uh, out of that uh, Ugra Rupam, right? So um, that is there. And also he uses Shiva's weapons, right? You know, one of the stories has him carrying the trident and, you know, the, and he has a third eye. Uh, that, that kind of symbolism also connects in the stories. Uh, but the withdrawal is done by you know one of the Shiva's forms, you know Virabhadra. Yeah, yeah. It, so. It's it, it's really interesting to me just because like these lines that we draw nowadays between Vaishnavism, Shaivism, Shaktism, they're all blurred at some level. Like I feel like like these are some ways artificial categories that we we think about, but maybe in these villages and these traditions, they're way way more integrated than we're than we think when we really understand them to be. Right. Right. So, uh, so Hinduism is a truly pluralistic tradition. Uh, when you see, you know, uh, of course, in the text, maybe you would find, you know, like these arguments and then mm -hmm. these divisions and all that. But when you see them um, in the practice, on the ground practice, you know, so um, they are much more connected. Mm -hmm. uh, temples and the festivals and, you know. Um, and you probably visited South Indian temples, so you know, uh, the, so Sri Rangam, you know, the Vishnu and Shiva, yeah. how they are married, you know, so, um, so uh, closely connected, you know, the, the, the Shakti and Shiva and Vishnu, uh, maybe separate, um, but separate theology, but uh, sure. they're still connected, so, so, uh, so mostly pluralistic. Uh, understanding of religion in practice. Absolutely. It, it fascinates me to no end that even though that you might have like a very strong, for example, like since I, I know much more about Vaishnavism than I do about Shaivism, but even within the Vaishnavite like Pancharatha texts or, 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 or even the, the Puranas in some sense, you will find this desire to integrate 
Shiva Shakti into that entire form, right? It's it, no one ever says, "Oh, worshiping Shiva is evil. It's terrible. It's wrong. Whatever." It's much more like, "Oh, he's just the form. It's another. It's another way you can you can worship him for the." It's so it's very inclusive in how they're trying to build this this. I mean, I don't say theology, but this interconnectionness between everything connected to, to the land. Right. Right. It's this idea of one, right? You know, yeah. all the gods and goddesses represent this one uh, god, ultimate uh, god. Yeah. That that you cannot see. So these these gods are like you know the representations that you can uh, understand. Sure. So, you know. sure. so 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 shifting to another topic, you know, and this is kind of a very big pivot, but we'll, we'll pivot nonetheless. You know, I, one of the things I've been hearing about a lot more amongst, you know, scholars in private and also in, in the popular world is the difficulty within academia and the study of Hinduism and how very much, or Indic traditions, is very much um, still built on these colonial or Western lenses. Um, and even professors, and, I, and you know, I know you are also heading the, the American uh, Academy for Religion and uh, Hindu Studies and stuff of that nature. How is it that you understand this problem, or, or is it a problem that currently exists? It's it's an issue that um, uh, Indian uh, academia and those studying Indian um, uh, culture and history. Um, mm -hmm have to do something sooner or later uh, because any anything that you would uh, try to understand of course you know uh, you have probably interviewed all of them uh, from orientalism to nay science uh, sure. our scholars have examined them uh, and everyone had given the same conclusion you know this this is a western uh, interpretation of what uh, indian culture was supposed to be right uh, and um, and we haven't uh, the 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 scholars or um, anyone trying to understand uh, from the other side uh, from from India mm -hmm. uh, haven't come up with a dialogue. You know, we need to have a dialogue. Um, of course, Western interpretations are done. Yeah. But what about the Eastern interpretations? Um, what are we doing, right? So um, the 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 next step. That's what I was. Um, trying to present and I was trying to um, ask mm -hmm. uh, the scholarly community. Uh, okay, right, we have done this uh, and we have understood um, how, you know, um, so what can we do about this? Uh, so, how can we proceed? Uh, how can we understand it differently? Uh, so what is the crux of the, the fundamental if you can narrow it down to a few issues or a few concepts, what is really at the core of this kind of confrontation or disjunction between the Western side and the, I guess, the native, native or indigenous side? The, the, the origin itself is the problem, right? Um, um, as a historian, I see most of this colonialist understanding. Uh, and the beginnings of history writing and, you know, the linguistics, history, sociology, um, and everything, all of the humanities, actually, uh, that are connected with India, begin uh, with the East India Company. Uh, yeah. So, um, of course, you can uh, imagine the lens that they would bring to. Uh, so, any, any research that is funded by East, East India Company, 
and any research that was later on supported by uh, the imperial uh, state, uh, of course, is um, is going to be tilted uh, because of the nature of the state. Um, it's not that the scholars are, you know, intentionally trying to, you know, do something. They are, they are also living in it, right? So everybody yeah. is living in it. So everybody is living in this colonial culture. The scholars, the people, the state, everybody. Uh, so, so the colonialist origin of this colonial scholarship uh, is, of course, mired uh, in, this, in this colonial outlook. Hmm. Of course, we have come out of it. Um, all post-colonial societies, of course, we are doing it, but all of the post-colonial societies have the same issue. Uh, the colonial society uh, actually silenced uh, the native cultures, native history, native uh, traditions. It happened in Africa, it happened in India, uh, and it happened in uh, colonized Southeast Asian states as well as South America. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were much more changed. Uh, India, you know, it's in the middle way. Uh, so uh, every every culture, every colonized society is, you know, uh, finding it difficult uh, to actually um, understand and then uh, go back. That's the reason we have this post-colonialist understanding, right? Mm-hmm. You know, post-colonial societies are trying to understand and trying to um, come up with, you know, wh- what it was. Um, because they were all silenced, their voices are silenced, their, their texts were interpreted for them by the others, by the colonialists. Mm. So, so where is the native voice? So how would the natives would understand that? So right. uh, there is a huge gap that needs to be filled. Uh, and that's where the work is um, now, you know, the, the Indian academia. Yeah. The, I'm really hopeful of this uh, new education policy. It gives much more emphasis to humanities and soul sciences uh-huh. and the arts, uh, along with you know professional studies. So I am hoping uh, there will be much more fruitful study. There will be much more uh, critical understanding. What happened until now is you know uh, the the original scholarship is created, mm-hmm. original theories are created, the critical theories and all these are actually based in Western philosophy, not yeah. in uh, Indian philosophy. So. So what would Indian philosophy do? You know, how would Indian philosophy understand all these things? And how would, you know, Indian history be? How would the Indian sociology be? How would Indian linguistics be? You know, the linguistics were completely uh, written by outsiders. So um, new understanding is necessary, but how we do it is also very important. And I'm hopeful um, that that will happen with the new education policy. I'm really, really hoping. (laughs) You know, I I hope so, but you know, what strikes me as really interesting and, and kind of somewhat difficult is, you know, all the knowledge systems we have now are, like you said, very Western-based. And the as- assumption inherently within that is this is universal. We have, we have worked out the, actually, the high, like, for example, higher-level criticism in, in literature or looking at things. We, we can actually give you the perspective of all this, right? I mean, I don't know how, how, how honest that is, but... In some sense, what we end up having is an entire world which currently buys into these fundamental first principles in the Western sense of humanities and, and social sciences and saying this is universal and anything that's done by like any other society is, is parochial or very limited. And, and for the people within India themselves who have, have lost these connections, and in some sense, the traditions themselves have stall, stalls, right? Like 
we don't have an idea of how would, how would have the, the, the thoughts of Shankaracharya or the philosophy of Advaita been able to impact the way we think about science or think about history or think about art. You know, we don't have that because there was a stop in that kind of flow of thought, you know. Right. Um, so, you know, we don't study the traditional texts. We don't study anything. So, so, so I guess my, my difficulty is, is this, is this almost uh, uphill, almost, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say impossible, because nothing's impossible, but incredibly improbable project that we're trying to engage in, in trying mm-hmm. to, to, to gain back our, our place in the intellectual world within India. Because I don't, even now, like a lot of scholars out of India are not, first of all, like, I, I think there's probably really great scholars within India that write in their native languages, who study incredibly well, but no one reads their work. Right, because it's it's in their native languages, and the lingua franca of scholarship today is all in in English, where 150 years ago was like German or French or whatever it is. So that's all changed. So how how do you think we can approach this, and how can India? And this is the craziest thing to me is no one takes the words of Indians in India or even Indians in America unless you toe the line of the Western academia. Like Indians apparently don't know their text as well. Indians don't know the history as well. Indians don't know anything about their society unless the white man has told us. Or, or someone from the white institution has told us. Which is very scary to me. Like, yeah. But that's the situation though. We have lived through it for the last hundred years. So, so that was the situation. If that has to change, um, more um, work has to be done. Right. Uh, and um, and the issue that you raised, you know, with the languages, um, I think we are actually getting to a, a place where you can write in any language, it would be translated into uh, any language that you want. Sure. Uh, you know, just like the, the blogs, you know, the blogs we have, our blogs, you know, have this icon that, that would automatically translate into any right. language. So Indian languages, of course, the translator is a little bit difficult, but I think India can work that. Um, as the academia places more emphasis on yeah. the humanities, you know, the, according to the NEP, they're going to place equal importance on the translations and um, working with the um, texts, classical texts and all that. So, so once the translations, once the work on original classical texts begin, Mm-hmm. Uh, once the thesis are put in uh, electronic form, uh, yeah. I think the, the, the change would come. It's, a, it's an up, uphill task, yeah. a difficult task, uh, but uh, of course we have uh, you know, a large population and large number of people are working on it. It's sure. not, like, you know, not like before. You know, uh, before we had only 60 universities that would allow people to work. Now we are going to have more universities, more work, uh, and more I think the... Um, electronic uh, media is going to help us. Right, I mean, but, I mean... So this, this would be, uh, this is the, you know, kind of like a, the, um, the turning point. Um, I see a, like, turning point here. I, I, do, I do, too, and, and I'm hopeful, uh, but it, it, it's, still, it's still somewhat flabbergasts me that a lot of, lot of Western people or Western um, academics still buy into like the Hegelian thought that India had no history, right? It, they, were, they were terrible at recording history. And then, when, and then like, like Vishwa Adilari and uh, Joydeep Bakshi had beautifully yeah. brought out in their text that, you know, this concept of, of the stratas in, in the Mahabharata or Ramayana, whatever it is, 
it's, it's, no one can prove it. No one can even give you evidence for it, but it's taken as a fact. Uh, it must have been done this way because just because the Bible was done that way or someone else was done that way, there's no sense that this could have been by one author or at one point in time. It, it always appears as if like either we buy into, like for example, like Newton could have written hundreds of thousands of, you know, thousands of different works or you could have polymaths and polyglots in Western system, but clearly Vyasa can't be that. You know, you know, clearly, clearly Valmiki can't be that. He must, it, 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 that just blows my mind that we don't, that we're not giving these texts, these history, these people, the, the same level of respect that you would give to anyone in the Western world. Right. You know, that's, that's a colonized understanding, right? The colonized cannot do anything. <laughs> the colonial leaders would be the ones dictating the terms. So. Right. It, it, it's, I'm sure, I don't know. How, so how do, you, how do you deal with it? How do you deal with it being, you know, because I've read your work and obviously like you are a top-notch scholar, both in the Indian sense and the Western sense. You've been trained in both worlds and you have a, a, a traditional background too, I guess, in, in your belief system and your and your your ideas, but how do you how do you how do you balance it? And then, are you, do you feel that you're able to speak your voice, or do you feel that academia restricts it? Thank you for the kind words. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, the academia, of course, you know by nature yeah. uh, is tilted that way because the theories originated during the colonial period. Uh, and the theories that are used to study India are tilted that way because of our colonialism. But yeah. uh, that doesn't mean that I mean, everybody is um, everybody's trying to, you know, put down uh, the Indian uh, theories or Indian mm -hmm. understanding and Indian um, understanding of the text. Uh, there, are, there are sympathetic lenses. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Uh, when when uh, when we start working, when India starts working, uh, that's where we have to go. We should yeah. start producing more, uh, and we should start uh, understanding it in a sympathetic way, uh, and not get bogged down uh, by the um, by the colonialist theories. Uh, we should discuss them by all means. You know, sure. we should say, oh, this is it. This is what it was in the last hundred years, but. Uh, of course, this is how you know it, it changed, and there is there is you know this this positive contribution, and of course this is where uh, we are going now. So we have to place it in the context, uh, and uh, the the more we produce, the more translations we do, uh, and the more uh, we write, um, mm -hmm. um, it's going to change. You know that's that's uh, that's the reason I'm you know hopeful of this new uh, education policy. And I you know I. I I'm hopeful too, but sometimes I see these things like, for example, if you write, you know, a lot of pro-Hindu stuff, you get labeled Hindutva. Or if you if you attack attack Western ideas about what India is, you get labeled Hindutva. Like even it, it's constantly like either you accept what is being told in the past hundred years as being sacrosanct and true and whatever, or you are the enemy. You are like a regressive person. And, and I find that, like, and, and to be honest, it's, it's, it's sad because, you know, a lot of these professors, and I've talked to quite a few of you guys, will right. say, say one thing separately, but will not say it in public. Because the right. moment you say that, it's like you get labeled this. 
and, and and this, by the way, is not just Indian professors, but white professors. They, who, they are they are labeled even more. Yeah, they're seen, you know, as um, going away from what they learn. So they're labeled even more harshly. Right. So, so Indian professors are um, are the Western professors that come from uh, local Western societies. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Um, anyone that 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 goes out of this framework uh, is labeled and censured. Yeah. Um, but the 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 way we have to change it is um, by producing the dialogue. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it it has been in a silent mode. Yeah. The dialogue has to begin. Uh, but when the dialogue begins, it's it's going to be in a slow way. Um, it's going to be censured. Sure. Um, you know, like Gandhi said, they're going to laugh at you, then they, <laughs> they will listen. So, so, um, so it's going to be censured, yeah, uh, definitely. Um, but the more work uh, it produces and the more scholars that work mm -hmm. on it. Uh, and in India, uh, of course, uh, two ways of studying has to develop. Um, uh, the humanities, of course, from the Western uh, understanding of humanities in the universities. Mm -hmm. But we also need to have the traditional schools of thought, you know, the traditional schools that we had um, prior to British education system. Mm -hmm. We should allow them also to flourish. Then we can have a healthy dialogue. So if the, yeah. if the healthy dialogue happens in India, and that's what comes out. Uh, right. we, can, we cannot change it um, outside. We cannot change it in Western academia. We cannot change it in Germany. Uh, the change, uh, the dialogue uh, has to be produced in India. Um, the, 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 the activity has to take place in Indian academia. Right. Uh, to, to, to really be fruitful. Right. So, uh, so the condition that you described now uh -huh. uh, is right. Uh, that is true. That that's where we are now because the academia is rooted in this Western uh, philosophy and Western notions and Western frameworks. Uh, anything that goes outside of these frameworks sees like uh, it appears like you know something crazy. Uh, yeah. It doesn't really seem like you know. So so for 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 it to be accepted, there should be a dialogue. The dialogue should happen. You know. Um, where the sure. art is. And, and, and onto this, on that point, I want to take it to maybe an example that we can actually discuss like fully, you know, our invasion migration issue, right? This is one of the big, big pillars of much of what we understand about India sociologically, politically, uh, racially, everything like in some ways stems from this central idea of what, what India historically was and is and going to be right and 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 you've spent quite a bit of time to be honest in the past i think a couple of years right. writing at least at least on twitter I, yeah, I don't know if you, you've done some like presentations on this but you haven't written a book or anything so so one of, one of the things i you know i want to i want to talk about is that because you have indicated that for a long time you were proponent of uh, invasion theory or migration theory but at some point you you you, you, you did not you, you, you changed your view. Can you, can you explain your process in that and what happened and why? As I read more, uh, as I read more history uh, yes. and read more uh, of uh, Max Muller's work also, uh, and towards the later part of his career, he actually came out and said the theory he created was really not a racist theory. 
yeah. Uh, yeah, he was quite apologetic of it. So, um, so gradually, as I read more, uh, as I tried to understand history more, of course, you know, uh, what you read in the book is not what you see on the ground. Huh. So, so you know, this this classification of the society, you know, this this the Aryan race, Dravidian race, you know, mm -hmm. or sometimes these Dravidians are, you know, low caste, sometimes these are South Indian, you know, uh, and that kind of divisions you don't see. Uh, and there was um, no concept of, ca you know, the, the caste is very different. It's not a uh, systematized uh, concept. Um, prior to British systematization prior to the census and recording and all that <clears throat> there were castes subcastes and there is flexibility you mean, you mean varna jati you had varna jati yeah even within the caste within the jati there is a flexibility yeah. uh, the, the subcaste can move within you know uh, and also there is um, different castes in different regions mm. Uh, and some castes actually recruited uh, people into their castes. Oh, so, really? So it's not, yeah, it's not as if, you know, it, it stayed in a fixed frame forever. Um, it, it changed. People moved uh, up right. and down. People changed caste. People, when they moved to different places, they actually changed their caste. We have inscriptions for that. We have, mm -hmm. you know, stories about that. And, and ground also reality. Some of the um, British census takers recorded that, how the caste actually changed and all that. Sure. So, yeah. So the jati uh, is not uh, what we see it today. Uh, hmm. The jati before 19th century is much different. Sure. And the jati in 10th century is even more different. Um, you know, in Chola inscriptions, Pallava inscriptions, you know, they say uh, the lower caste people were kept outside. They did not, you know, have the land. But you would see them in land records. The lower caste, so-called lower caste, are actually uh, seen as, you know, selling, buying land. Uh, and you would see in these records. So, really? Um, the, yeah, the concept that we understand now uh, is much different uh, about the Hindu society um, prior to the 10th century. And uh, it wow. gradually became more fixed because we, uh, people were not really moving uh, mm. from 13th century onwards. Uh, and of course, after 15th century, there is no movement at all. <laughs> and there is a resource crunch and more wars. And you know, so, so when a society is undergoing through uh, lots of violence, uh, yeah. society stagnates. Uh, that's what you would see when the British comes and it stagnates even more uh, under the British because, you know, there's more resource crunch and uh, people are going, you know, poor. Right. So, so the society, um, you know, changed a lot. It's not the system that, you know, that why it was created and then it continued. Sure. For years. Sure. It's not like that. Yeah. So, I mean, not me saying, even the census takers say that. The yeah. British Stakers, you know, they, they record these differences and they talk about it. Yeah. So, so getting, I mean, getting back to the our aspect. So, what? How about all the data that 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 the the, the proponents say the linguistic data, the genetic data, the, the 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 data of the fact that horses are not found in India or all. By, yeah. By now, you know, everybody, all the experts in every fields. I uh, have said there is no evidence. Um, so the linguists have said it. 
um, you know, you you uh, interviewed, I think, uh, Shrikant Talagari. Um, no, I haven't interviewed Shrikant Talagari, but I'm going to, but, but I mean, the, the uh, problem... So, so the ling- yeah, so the linguists have spoken, uh, and uh, the... Well, the, the Western linguists don't. The Western linguists... All the Western linguists still think there's Aryan invasion. Like, for example, what's in the David Anthony? Um, much of the Western linguistic side, even if you're on the listserv, I used to follow the listserv once in a while back in the day. You know, the, they would always talk about how it's all a migration. Their Aryans had to have come in. And, and the genetic data is all mixed all over the map now. Like, if you believe in the migration, then suddenly the data supports you. But if you don't believe in the migration, then it doesn't. So I, it, 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 it seems to be like, most people tend to support the, most people outside of India tend to support the migration theory. Um, and a lot of people within India support the non-migration theory. Uh, India is indigenous. In the, in the West also, they are um, coming to recognize it. Um, uh, and some of these geneticists that you're talking, um, when the Raki Gari came out, yeah. uh, there was an interview with um, Raik, uh, and there yeah. was an interview with Shinde. Yeah, uh, and both of them said, you know, both of them said um, the Rakigari DNA actually shows the um, the DNA that evolved uh, specific DNA, Indian DNA, and then it has contributes in a large way uh, to Indian population. Right. So, um, and um, uh, and uh, I don't know who said that. Uh, and uh, Shinde, I think he said there is archaeological continuity, and we don't see any replacement in any of the places that are excavated up to now. Uh, and I did prehistory uh, of right. South India, so uh, we also see continuity in many of the places that were excavated. And sometimes, you know, they are side by side. You know, they are progressing. One society progresses into Neolithic; the other is still continuing with the Mesolithic. Right. But still, you know, uh, they're they're continuous civilizations. No, no real uh, replacement. So archaeology doesn't show any replacement. The stool, yeah. the tools, and everything is continuous. Uh, and I don't know, I, because I read it a long time ago, so I don't remember. But one of them also said, uh, for the Bronze Age, mm-hmm. um, uh, there is no uh, civilization in the steppes um, comparable in complexity and sophistication to uh, Indus Valley. Right. So what that means is, uh, there is no complex and comparable civilization in the steppes to come and overtake um, uh, Indus Valley cities are India. So right. the, the, the point of somebody entering India is ruled out uh, by them, you know, by the geneticists and archaeologists that worked on it. And Shinde even went farther and he said um, the, the archaeology doesn't show any replacement. Uh-huh. And the, the Vedic texts uh, talk about the same places that are associated with uh, Indus Valley. Uh, mm-hmm. The early Indus Valley sites are actually located on uh, Saraswati River, so Sindhu mm-hmm. Saraswati. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so he says uh, the either I think they are contemporary, um, but Vedic texts don't talk much about um, the civilization because they're not concerned about it. They are concerned right. about the spirituality and you know all that. So, but he thinks. Um, the Vedic uh, civilization may have followed uh, from the Harappan civilization, the Indus civilization. But I think they, they probably may have existed as uh, contemporary civilizations because 
um, Indus Valley sites we find from the from 10,000 years ago, uh, and agriculture evolved uh, by itself 12,000 years ago in South India, and of yeah. course we also find it in uh, northwestern India. So, so, so I would think the what we are calling as Vedic civilization or Vedic culture is not a separate aspect. Uh, mm. It's it's an aspect of uh, civilization that existed in India. Sure. Uh, it probably drew uh, people from uh, many parts of India, just like the just like Kashi and these places. You know, they have monastics and um, yoga practitioners coming from all over India. Uh, yeah. Then uh, practicing their own uh, yoga and their own theories, and then writing about them. Right. So I, I would think. Uh, probably similar uh, style of um, uh, Vedic uh, um, understanding might have existed um, because the Vedic texts don't uh, seem like, you know, they are recording everyday events of civilization. Sure, sure. They seem like mystical texts and they also said, you know, we have to trust them on what they said. They said mystical revelations and they said, uh, um, you know, they're, they're living in, you know. <laughs> right. I mean, they didn't say we are living in this city and writing the story of this king. Of course, the name might appear sometimes, but you know, right. so they're I, out of the civilization. I mean, in the recent uh, excavation of uh, Sanali is also a very, very strong, I think, position um, that that I think a lot of archaeology can't rebut. You know, in terms of we we found a wheel, we found you know a potential chariot 2000 BCE, maybe a little before, right. well before the time that the 500 years minimum before the time the, well, so the so-called Aryans would have come into it. Right. Right. So if the original argument is that the chariot would have brought is the indication of the Aryans, then if it was there before, then maybe the, the quote unquote Aryans were already there. They're just, they're from there. Right. right? But I also think it's fascinating because like, why does no one take seriously our mythic memory of, uh, uh, of Yayati, Yadu, Urvas, you know, we talk in our, 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 his, our text about how we did a westward expansion, right? It, it, uh, certain groups came out. And, and part of me thinks that probably what happened to this is ancient, ancient times, like maybe four, three, 4,000 BC, they went out and they came back because it talks about them coming back. So, so I have a sense that we have encoded some right. of the migrations, but we have no sense of us coming, of Indians coming into India. Right. And like it's a brand new land. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the genetic uh, evidence, of course, the media twists it, you know, in, in whatever way they want to twist it, but the genetic evidence is um, very clear. Uh, the genetic evidence shows the, the male DNA as well as female DNA. Uh, dating from uh, female from 73,000 years ago and male DNA from 70,000 years ago, I think. Yeah. Same range. Um, so, uh, and uh, of course, you know, all these other um, uh, later DNA evolved from those, you know, the, the male C, D, F, and the female M, and then N and R. And you have this pattern of evolution also in India, the, the, the nucleus that are evolving from these other clades. So, so the, the population development, demographical evolution, you can actually trace in India. Uh, and uh, all of the um, 
genetic evidence that was found uh, is actually older um, for for M, for R, for R1. Uh, older evidence actually comes from India. So so that shows that you know, um, and we know it was the first originally founded. You know, the founders are in um, India. So Indian subcontinent was founded. Uh, right after you know, African uh, exodus. So. so, so I mean, but I have a few generous friends. So one of my, one of my friends, uh, and I do another podcast called Brown Pundits, and that's Razib Khan. And he he's spent some time with the genetic data, but he, his, his theory is, I mean, based on his study, is that, the, that you know, 3,500 years ago, we see a clear impact of some sort of steep people's DNA entering into, into the subcontinent that has now basically filtered out everywhere. So, but I mean, I don't, again, I'm not a geneticist. I don't know anything about this stuff. Like I'm not, I, I, I'm, I don't know anything. So you've probably studied more than I have. I don't know what, if, if you have a understanding of that, that data or not. I have, um, the paper I wrote is between, you know, 2006 to actually 2012. It was actually published in 2012. Yeah. So I, I presented about it and I studied as the papers were coming out. Yeah. So from 2006, a lot of studies actually came out. Yeah. That was the original theory. The original Sufosa, you know, the original theory that they wrote was, you know, there was this migration in um, kind of like uh, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, and yeah. then replaced everybody. Uh, but that gradually changed. Uh, as more evidence began, um, as more evidence becomes available, mm -hmm. uh, and um, and both of them, the Rakigari, <laughs> Rakigari is actually a breaking point. Mm -hmm. uh, the Rakigari shows that you know the the migration, uh, our um, invasion, our large groups of people coming in, uh, probably is very limited. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, it's not me saying. Both of the geneticists, Reich and um, Shinde, both of them said that in their interview, uh, no replacement or no large scale migration actually happened uh, for that time period uh, mm -hmm. that we originally talked about, you know, the 15, uh, 1500 BC or yeah. you know, 2000 BC. Yeah. For that time period, it, it did not happen. Um, so now they say it may have happened later, you know, 5000 years ago or 1500 years ago. That's historical migration that we know. You know, the yeah, Greek, yeah. Greeks have come in, you know, 1500 years ago. Yeah, well, and they, we, yeah, yeah 2,500 years ago, right? Yeah, Alexander. So 500 years ago, the, the more Iranians came, we know that, yeah. you know, more uh, refugees, you know, the Zoroastrian um, and you yeah, know, yeah. Arab and, you know, so, so we know 500 to 1500 years ago, uh, what happened. Uh, the original argument was 15,000 years ago. Uh, and after this Rakigari, um, uh, they said that in their interview and in their paper also, they talk about it. So mm. the, the migrations that uh, said to have happened uh, 1500 years ago or 2000 years ago uh, might, have happened, might not have happened. If at all they have happened, they might have been very negligible. And they also agreed. I don't know who... Um, uh, who said that in both of them, um, they said there was no parallel developed civilization in the steppes yeah. to actually migrate at that time. So there yeah. should have been an equally stronger civilization. Yeah, and, and you mean 2000 BC, uh, right? Indus Valley. So the genetics doesn't show it. They yeah. said it. Uh, 
Uh, and then the archaeologists said that there is no comparably strong civilization to come and overtake uh, Indus Valley and then migrate into India. The Indus yeah. Valley actually, you know, slowly um, uh, took, went, uh, went into the India. Yeah. Uh, and this is not un unnatural or unknown in Indian history. In the prehistory, uh, we actually know uh, shifts from one region to the other. Uh, hmm. of the, um, the early uh, evidence of early Paleolithic, lower Paleolithic, we actually have uh, in peninsular India and then in uh, really Himalayan foothills. The, hmm. the Middle is, you know, kind of like um, they're there, but, you know, later. Yeah. Not really the early phase. Uh, right. But uh, the, as it comes to um, Middle Paleolithic, more evidence is from um, Madhya Pradesh. Hmm. So you won't find more, you know, there is some, it's not that they are, the sites are abandoned, yeah. but more development in the central India. So, so that, that happens, you know, cultural shifts happen. Cultural hmm. shift doesn't mean that, you know, the civilization over be, has been overtaken. They continued, right. but once civilization becomes developing further and developing more, the other place actually, you know, becomes... Um, smaller and then they migrate here and right. cultural shifts happen. Uh, cultural shifts always happen. Um, even now, you know, the modern society, we see um, cultural shifts happen from south to north, north to south, you know, mm -hmm. one industrial city to the other industrial city. You know, uh, the, the steel, steel cities, you know, uh, we see them decline mm -hmm. and other technological cities become, you know, progressive and all that. So, so the cultural shifts always happen as resources and um, and agriculture and more newer things develop, but that yeah. doesn't mean that you know some somebody is overtaken. You know, somebody came from uh, Indus Valley and overtook somebody else. Yeah. So I mean, from my understanding, we find you know weapons, too many weapons, and yeah. uh, of course we didn't have too much of a resource crunch. So. So I mean, like, so uh, here's my understanding. My understanding is. The archaeology shows continuous, continuous civilization, right? Like, even though might, there might have been a break here and there because of droughts and things of nature, there's, there's shifts, right? Like you said, cultural shifts. They might move to a different location because the Saraswati Patrai, right? And then so they move over to the Gunga Plain or wherever, right. right? But, you know, there is genetic information that people came in, but that doesn't mean anything. That just means people came in, right? So say even 1,500 years ago, people from the steppes came in. They just came in. It, it means nothing more about a cultural continuity shift, nothing of that nature. So uh, the, way I, the way it appears to me is the linguistic argument is very, very problematic um, from a variety of perspectives. I, I, my primary issue is you have the Mitanni culture sitting in the Near East, almost in the Mesopotamian region, around the same time as the, I mean, the downfall of the, the Harappan community or not the downfall, but the shift, uh, the demographic shift. So my guess is that community moved out of that region, moved towards the east, I mean, the west, went to uh, Mitanni and they had the kingdom there. Because um, you don't see really much diffusion otherwise. And even the, the Zoroastrian texts show clearly a movement out and Iran is a new region for them, right? Which they're trying to like, in many ways, like America did, like, you know, we have New Haven, New York, all these places that are connected to England. The Iranian texts show that the same thing they took from what was around the time of what we call the Greater India, I would say, like, you know, up to like Afghanistan regions there, all shifted over to more towards northern Afghanistan into Iran. So the, the places in India shifted to places in Iran. 
we see a migration, at least from that level, from our perspective. And, I, and, and, I, and for me, I just fundamentally think that we're just still relying on the dates that makes no sense by Max Mueller. Like your original point, like I don't understand any other science or any other real hard science that says some guy pulled out a random date, you know, out of his back pocket 150 years ago, and still somehow that date still holds. <laughs> it, it, it hasn't shifted. Everything's shifted around it, but that hasn't shifted. Right. Um, uh, I, I don't study the Western um, much, but um, because of my focus on uh, the, the Aryan and all this, I yeah. studied somewhat. You know, the, the Mitanni, of course, is dated between 13 to 1500 because yeah. of the letters and the inscriptions and all that. Yeah. Uh, and the names and all that. And um, we have this evidence beginning with uh, 1300 to uh, up to Babylonian period. You know, mm -hmm. the, there are Babylonian inscriptions and there are, um, of course, her, uh, Indus Valley seals uh, are yeah. found in Oman and um, Bahrain. Um, so, so there is continuous evidence uh, from 1300 onwards and up to 500 CE. Yeah. Um, after 500... Uh, BCE. So after 500 BCE, of course, it becomes uh, less. Uh, yeah. We don't know what the reason was. Um, and we don't know which way uh, it happened. Um, and uh, Indus Valley, of course, you know, the Rakigari skeleton was found. Yeah. And the Rakigari skeleton matched. Uh, and uh, it actually matches with 60% of the uh, 30% of the population, of course, 60% is from M, uh, and mm -hmm. this is the later derivative of that. So, so anyway, um, that matches with the majority of population in India, but um, it also matches with uh, 11 of the ancient skeletons that are found in uh, two other sites. Um, so, uh, one in Central Asia and one in uh, kind of like in the, um, in the Arab Peninsula. Uh -huh. uh, so, um, so the evidence is that um, Indian um, people of Indian heritage, mm -hmm. um, 11 skeletons is a lot. Um, they say there are 523 skeletons, but we don't know how many of them are from um, that time period. Uh, and we also don't know how many of them are from uh, Central Asia and uh, um, the Arab Peninsula. Mm -hmm. So considering the fact that there are 11 skeletons, 11 ancient skeletons, um, that match with the uh, Rakigari profile, mm -hmm. um, I, would, I would consider uh, that people traveled uh, westward. Mm -hmm. uh, and also considering the fact that um, Indus Valley objects and Indus Valley artifacts uh, are found in uh, the BMAC and all these other sites. Yeah. But uh, typical BMAC or other objects are not found in India. So, really? so Indians are traveling. Mm -hmm. Indians are traveling. Their genetics are found. And they are found in these ancient sites. Interesting. Uh, and the Indian artifacts are found in these ancient sites. Right. Uh, and not much is found uh, in, um, in, in, in India. And uh, the seals, you know, the Indus Valley seals are found in Bahrain and Oman, right? Lots of seals. Right. Uh, are found, but um, you know, not not many found in uh, in the Valley cities. So they're, they're called Gulf Gulf type of seals, so you know, 
that's, one, that's one that type of seal is found in you know lotto so yeah so wow. so so if you are thinking about that um, there are two things to consider uh, mm. two things are um, their things are found their skeletons are found mm. and uh, uh, their language is also found the the sanskrit you know the homeland of sanskrit you know the the vedic texts actually place it in northwestern india in indus valley yeah so so all these are found in uh, westward direction uh, hmm. so uh but the first thing that we must uh consider doing is uh working on indian history hmm. working on uh, trying to uh, decide what indian history was um deciding who where the early beginnings are mm -hmm. what the contributions of these early uh, humans are mm -hmm. and what the cultural shifts are and until and unless we decide this and until and unless we say you know this this aryan is not a race it was a theory and this is how our history is uh, until and unless we decide that yeah we cannot really talk about this outward expansion we should yeah. first know uh, what we are doing here for sure uh, and we cannot teach young children um, these constructed theories as a fact uh right now we are actually teaching children uh, that these are facts yeah uh, they came and they took over the, you know so this is actually kind of a not a good thing for young minds to absorb uh such kind of you know uh, invasions by race and taken over by other race the race is a, also a construct so course, we should just yeah. be teaching this kind of theories and we should not be talking about race you know to third kids in third grade fourth grade you know not not a good idea um so indian history um, must be um must take care of these things these colonial things if they cannot really fully take it out they should at least say this is the theory this is what it was in the last 100 years mm -hmm. now there is no evidence and this is what we know right the evidence has been proven to be contrary uh there is no archaeological evidence linguistic evidence is shaky uh and genetic evidence shows a uh, very trace um minor um so so this is what we can understand uh right. society evolves with its own strengths uh yeah. of course there might be some migrations but that doesn't mean that india has completely changed or india has been completely wiped out and the new right. civilization began Uh, so we have to change um, how we teach our ancient history right. unless we do this we cannot really talk about these or what happened outside you know of course there are you know gulf seals you know there is there is dilmun and all this but um, unless we know what is happening in india we cannot really talk about you know what is happening outside we we should first know what is happening here and, and I, i think it's no I think it's such a difficult um upward upward fight right now just because I feel like there's so much political investment on in this in this idea right like because for example like then if if there is no Aryan invasion then what what what's the Dravidian movement in South India all about that 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 that's a huge problem for the politics there or if there's no Aryan invasion what is you know how does caste come about because you know caste is now seen 
in, in, in terms of that, how, how are North Indians different from South Indians then? Because the way we think about it now, it's all, it's all Aryan versus Dravidian, right? And the, this, again, is a fundamental, I think, the crux of every problem, at least in the social and political base that we have, in, in unifying and understanding each other across India. That's, that's what we should get into the text. That's what we should uh, include. You know, we should talk about the um, Aryan theory, how it was constructed. Yeah. How the evidence is disproving it. We, we, should, we should present it as it is. Right. Uh, and then we should go ahead and present, you know, how uh, the, the concept of caste is overimposed on, you know, what, uh, what was there. Right. And we should also talk about, you know, how this caste uh, systematized uh, and then how it actually um, you know it changed the whole system of jati jati was much different from what it was uh, yeah. so we could talk about you know the the historical change in the jati too uh, and uh, also if we have evidence for it uh, before, you know, we don't have evidence for it. So now we have evidence, you know, how caste migrated and how it happened. And all sure. that. So we, we can um, include that in the text. We are not saying, you know, oh, this is, you know, that is that, you know. Uh, presenting it as it is with the facts is very important. Uh, right. In history. And um, it's important for the children to know who they are. Uh, and um, the, the evidence, overarching evidence, uh, is that uh, we all derive from uh, the first founders. Uh, yeah. There might be some, you know, uh, but uh, overarchingly, um, overwhelmingly, uh, and the differences between jatis, castes, and all this is, you know, uh, not tenable. Uh, right. For example, they talk about, you know, Arvon is found in this caste, that caste. Um, you know, maybe Arvon is found in some, but within the same caste, the others that are founder, you know, R uh, and, you know, C and D and uh, F, the older ones. Yeah. Not that, you know, they're replaced. They, you can see the linear development from the founders. Sure. Uh, almost um, a large population. Um, and that's what they agreed after the Rakhi Gari, publication of Rakhi Gari. Yeah. The, the, the publications before are different, but after the Rakhi Gari, uh, they agreed with that. Uh, and they said it explicitly. Uh, that the migrations that they uh, thought happened at that time did not happen. Um, so so uh, if people are not ready to give it up, they want to hang on to the theory, let them hang on to it, but let's, let's put the facts out. Uh, yeah, let's yeah. talk about it. You know, yeah, absolutely. Important for the children to know. Uh, we cannot uh, keep the children in the dark uh, forever. Sure. You know, it's already 100 years. We cannot keep them in the dark for the next 100 years. Right. It's important to teach the facts. Right. Um, Absolutely. Um, so I've already taken like an hour and a half of your time. But uh, so um, what, what are you currently working on? And, and what are you looking to work on in the near future? Yeah. But I, two of my books are almost ready. Um, mm -hmm. the India and New History. Um, mm -hmm. I uh, use the new evidence and uh, try to uh, present them in this book. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's already done, but, you know, we still have to work on it a little bit more. Um, so it's, it's there. Uh, it's, it will be published soon uh, yeah. in a new history and talks about all this new information. Uh, and then the, um, 
uh, next book that I'm working is um, on the feminine journeys of Mahabharata. Uh, and I uh, discuss, uh, try to understand the, um, the heroines, not the yeah. heroines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, the heroines of the Mahabharata uh, and how their journeys were shaped um, in the original text. Uh, and then I also try to understand them uh, as they are understood within the culture uh, that we are living now. You mm. know, uh, the, the heroines are, the textual heroines are not just in the text, they're also in our festivals. Uh, Absolutely. Know, you have Savitri, you have Draupadi, you have, you know, many of them are. Uh, still part of the culture. So Damayanti, you know, so. I mean, I, I want to bring you back on for that for sure, because I think it's fascinating. But you know, I, just the point on that, it, it's interesting to me because, you know, Mahabharata is, I, like, I have it sitting right here. I, 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 I read it. I, you know, I love it. It's. You uh, cannot, yeah, you cannot read it fully. It's, it's an ocean. It's, it's amazing. Uh, but it, it's fascinating to me how in no other culture, of that period of time, or even into the Middle Ages, do you find the female ability to, to conversate as they're, 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 they're clearly a personality, they have opinions, their opinions are sometimes taken, sometimes not, and they're most of the time seen, found to be correct in the text, right? The way when a woman talks in the Mahabharata, people listen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is, this to me is, is, is so interesting because you could read the Bible, you can read other texts, you'll never have that. The people are just, they're there for a second, then they move on. Like, you know, like the, the conversation between, you know, Janaka and, and Saulaba, you know, is an amazing conversation. I, you can read nowhere else. Draupati's chastisement of Yudhishthira, you know, uh, Satyavati, and it's just all these characters have such personalities and voices. It's just, it's, I, I, it's, it's powerful. It's amazing, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I, I definitely want to have you on once that book comes out and then to talk about that, because I think it's, especially in this day and age, it's like something that's missing in, 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 in the conversation about what Hinduism is, what, how, what the role of women is, was, and how they were perceived in, in some of the greatest texts of mankind. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so thank you so much, uh, Professor so Ramsani. Thank you very um, you much know, for uh, having me on. Absolutely. Not, it was, I'm not much of a talker, but you have, um, have me get into the subject and discuss oh, uh, you're, you're, it's Thank great. you very much. No, I appreciate it. You know, I've learned so much and have, you know, I think our, my listeners will, will find this entirely riveting. Um, and definitely when that new book comes out, I want to have you back on. So do you have any last words or anything you want to, not last words as in like, in a, but like any last things you want to say? Thank you. Um, no. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah,